You're listening to The Taylor Marshall Show, a special podcast series on the book of Revelation called The Catholic Apocalypse. We're taking a Catholic look at the book of Revelation. This is part 13, and we're looking at chapter 19, the wedding supper of the Lamb, and then also the final culmination of the destruction of Jerusalem, where it is thoroughly desolated, and the eagles and unclean birds of the land come and eat the flesh of those who have rebelled against the Word of God, all in today's episode. Howdy, and thank you for listening to The Taylor Marshall Show. This is the podcast for everyone who wants to create daily habits and learn enough theology to take their faith to the next level. As I mentioned in the intro, we're looking at Revelation chapter 9, which has that wonderful passage about the wedding supper of the Lamb. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to wherever you are in the world, and thank you for tuning back in to the Taylor Marshall Catholic Show. This is a great chapter in the book of Revelation because we're finally getting some good news, some happy news. It's not all about um, desolation and destruction war. We actually do have that in this chapter, but we have a celebration, a liturgical celebration, actually, of victory. And chapter 19 begins with a five-part hymn. We're going to go through each one of those five parts. And then in the next section of chapter 19, we're introduced to a rider on a white horse, and he's followed by an army of victors also riding on white horses. This we're going to see is Christ himself and the saints and martyrs and angels in heaven following behind him as they bring about conquest over the world for the gospel as the Catholic Church extends throughout the entire world. And then in the third and final section of chapter 19, we're going to see that the sea beast, which is the pagan Roman Empire, and the land beast, which is apostate Jerusalem, apostate Israel, and the, and the leadership there, are cast into the lake of fire. And Christ comes with a sword issuing from his mouth, and with that he destroys his enemy. Of course, that represents the word of God coming forth from the mouth of Jesus Christ. So a lot in today's episode. And of course, next week in the next episode, we'll look at chapter 20, which gives us the thousand years, the millennium, which is extremely controversial in the history of the church, in the Catholic church, especially amongst Protestants. But we Catholics have had our own debate over the centuries on this passage. And so we'll be looking at that and looking at the tradition and the different voices within the Catholic church on the thousand year. But this week, we're going to stick to 19. And I think we should get started right away. I'll read the first um, section right here of the five-part hymn. So remember, last week in chapter 18, we saw uh, Babylon, the great city, which is an allegory for Jerusalem, was destroyed. She boasted that she was a queen, that she was not a widow, that she would never mourn. But we see that her adulterous boyfriends turn on her. They abandon her, and the city is destroyed and the people lament. So it ends in chapter 18 with a lament, but chapter 19 kicks off right away with a liturgical hymn of rejoicing. So let's look at that. Revelation 19, verse 1, beginning right here. Quote, After this, I heard what seemed to be the mighty voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Alleluia, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So that's the first part of the hymn. What's going on here? Well, first of all, we have the word Alleluia. The word Alleluia means praise the Lord in Hebrew. Surprisingly, it only appears four times in the New Testament. We say it every Sunday at Mass, but here it only appears four times in the New Testament, and wouldn't you know it, all four times are in chapter 9 of the book of Revelation. So if you read the entire New Testament, you're only going to find the word Alleluia four times, and it's right here, the four times. So it leads off with Alleluia. This uh, praising the Lord uh, reminds us of the Hallel Psalms in the book of Psalms, which were sung and celebrated at 
the Feast of Passover in the Old Testament, and also the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's a majority opinion amongst Catholic scholars that these were the same psalms, the Hallel Psalms, uh, that were celebrated by Christ and his apostles after the Last Supper. So a little bit of Eucharistic significance there. And as we see as we move through this chapter, there's a lot of Eucharistic significance related to not only these Hallel uh, hymns, this five-point hymn, but also the wedding supper of the Lamb. And surprisingly, the the saints in heaven, the great multitude, are praising God because God himself, through Jesus Christ, has judged the great harlot, the prostitute. He has judged Jerusalem. Jerusalem has killed the prophets in history. Jerusalem has condemned the Son of God to crucifixion. Uh, Jerusalem has killed the saints like St. Stephen. Jerusalem has persecuted and killed apostles like St. James the Greater and St. James the Less and later St. Simon. And here the saints in heaven are rejoicing that this apostate city who once was like a wife unto God, a virgin pure, but became a harlot, has now been destroyed as we saw in chapter 18 in the last episode. Then the second part of the hymn moves on. It says, once more they cried, Alleluia. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. All right, now this is not literal because Jerusalem is not still on fire. Um, No city right now is still on fire. But what it means is the condemnation, the sentence against Jerusalem is everlasting. Jerusalem will never again be the sacramental center of God's saving power. As we see in the book of Acts, and as I've written in my book, The Eternal City, if you're interested in learning more about this, in The Eternal City, I show how God moved the locus, moved the capital of his uh, salvation economy from Jerusalem to Rome. And that's why the Pope lives in Rome, and that's why we are the Roman Catholic Church. Of course, we do have the Eastern Catholic Churches, but they are in communion and submitted to Rome in the person of the Pope, who is the vicar of Christ. And they have their own canon law, of course, in the Eastern churches, but they still are in communion and under the authority of the vicar of Christ, because only the Bishop of Rome is the supreme pontiff and the vicar of Christ. In verse 4, we see the third part of this Eucharistic hymn, and we see the 24 priests, the 24 presbyters, We haven't seen them in a little while, but they're back now. They were in Revelation 4, and you can go back and listen to that episode where we give a whole detailed account of why there's 24 of them. It has to do with the 12 apostles and the 12 patriarchs. Also, there are 24 divisions of the Old Testament priesthood. So it says the 24 elders also break out in a hallelujah chorus, and they say, Amen, hallelujah, and they begin to worship God. Then in verse 11, Five, we see the fourth part of the hymn. From the throne came a voice crying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, great and small. And then in verse six, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of many thunder peals, crying out. And this is the great multitude that we saw sealed earlier in the book of Revelation. They say, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, The Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to be clothed with linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. All right, so we'll pause there. So that's the five-point hymn. It's soaked in the word Alleluia, and we see different parts of heaven Uh, joining in. We have a great multitude, and then in the middle there, it goes to the 24 elders, so to the clergy of heaven, the priesthood of heaven, and then it goes back to the great multitude. And at the very end, we are given a hint of what is to come next. And it says that the marriage, the wedding of the lamb is come, and the bride has made herself ready. And, you know, here we have this language of the bride, and it should beg the question, who is the bride? Well, since in Revelation 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, we've seen the great harlot. We've seen the great prostitute as she's made an adulterous adulterous, uh, covenant 
with the pagan empires, she's finally been put out of the way. She's gone. She's judged. She's destroyed. That is the Old Testament priestly uh, dispensation led by Annas, Caiaphas, the evil priest, the Sanhedrin, who judged Christ. But now we have a new lady in the book of Revelation, and this is the bride. And we're going to see that she's a virgin, that she's pure, and wherever Christ calls, she follows. She is the holy, immaculate Catholic Church. And we Catholics know that our church here on earth is not perfect. We know that there are scandals amongst in the history of the church amongst the papacy, amongst the cardinals, amongst archbishops and bishops and priests and deacons and religious, scandals amongst nuns, and of course scandals amongst lay people and Catholic kings. We know that this has happened in the history of the church. But what we have here is a mystery that is both eschatological, which means referring to the end times, but also heavenly. Remember in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Esther, Sarah, they were not in heaven. They were in Sheol, also known as Abraham's bosom, uh, also known as the limbo of the fathers, limbo of the patriarchs. And so now, because Christ has died on the cross, he's opened the gates of heaven. He's brought, of course, all those from the Old Testament out of the limbo of the fathers and the mothers and brought them into the beatific vision. Now there's a company in heaven reigning with Christ. And so we have the Catholic Church already perfected in heaven. And we here on earth are kind of like in the audition mode. By baptism, we belong to that community. But baptism also gives us the grace to persevere unto the end. And so we really don't know if we're going to be ultimately saved until we die a holy death. And that's why we, we Catholics have prayers in the Eucharist, in the liturgy, that pray that we might have the grace to persevere unto the end. It's not something that we do on our own power. It's something that we do by God's power, by the grace that he gives us, but we can reject his love. He gives us the gift of salvation, and just like any gift, a gift can be damaged, it can be broken, it can be forgotten, it can be thrown away. So salvation is a gift, but we have to persevere. So here on earth, the church is more like an audition. In heaven, those who are in heaven right now, they are pure. They are immaculate. They are without sin. The entire assembly, the communion of saints in heaven with the Blessed Virgin Mary and St. Joseph and John the Baptist and Peter and Paul is totally without sin. And this is the bride that has made herself ready for Jesus Christ. And of course, we on earth are called to imitate those those saints and to follow Christ to be a faithful spouse to Christ. Before we move on to the next section here, I just want to note that the bride of Christ is wearing fine linen. And St. John tells us the fine linen dress that she's wearing is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the church is wearing a garment, and the garment is given to us by Christ but the garment is something that the saints did as well. It's their righteous deeds. So we receive Christ's righteousness through justification. But his justification, his righteousness, becomes our righteousness. And so the church is decorated or is clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which becomes our own righteous deeds. Protestants don't believe this, by the way. They believe that for some reason... If we have righteous works or righteous deeds, we're somehow earning our salvation and that Christ's death isn't enough. We Catholics actually have a higher view of grace. We believe that Christ's righteousness is so powerful, his grace is so magnanimous in our lives, that he can produce good works in us that are salvific. In verse 9, it reads like this, And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. So here's this verse that we hear every time in the Catholic Mass, right? Blessed are those who are called to the Supper of the Lamb. It comes directly from Revelation 19, and it refers to the Eucharist. The Eucharist is eschatological. That means the Eucharist is an end times event. The Eucharist points us to the final consummation 
between Jesus and his virgin bride, the church, when we are perfectly united with him. And every wedding, which brings a groom and a bride together, has a feast, has a party. And that's what eternity is going to be at the end of time. It's going to be one giant wedding party where Christ turns all the water into wine. Now, St. John is so excited to hear this and hear the angel say this that he does something a bit peculiar. In verse 10, it says, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you, and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. End quote. So what's going on here in chapter, I mean, verses 9 and 10? St. John, an apostle, one of the twelve, the one apostle who stood at the foot of Christ of Jesus, falls down to worship an angel. What is going on here? Well, the Greek word for worship is proskuneo. And proskuneo means to bow down, to do homage, to reverence. Now, we Catholics have a very advanced doctrine of reverence and worship, and it comes from us from the Seventh Ecumenical Council, Council of Nicaea II, Second Council of Nicaea in the 8th century. And at this council, they wanted to determine two things. First of all, can human Christians reverence or show bodily um, veneration for human and angelic saints. In other words, should we be revering St. Michael and St. Paul and the Blessed Virgin Mary, or should we only show any veneration to Jesus Christ, the Father, and the Holy Spirit? That was the first question. The second one was related to it, and that is, can we make physical images of Jesus Christ and the Virgin Mary and St. Peter and St. Paul and St. Michael or a cross or a crucifix? And can we show those physical items reverence or veneration? And should we worship them or not? Would that be idolatry? So at this council, which is a Catholic council, it is infallible, according to the Catholic Church. It is without error. The council taught us there is a distinction and two kinds of reverence. The first kind in Greek is called latria, L-A-T-R-I-A, latria. Latria is given only to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So we give it to Jesus Christ, and that means we also give latria to the Eucharist because we believe the Eucharist is Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity. So that's latria. Then the second kind is called dulia. D-U-L-I-A. And dulia is a reverence or an honor. And we humans already make this distinction in our minds, but I'll give you a few examples. Um, If you salute a general, are you giving him the worship of Latria as if he's God, the Trinity, or are you simply venerating him or honoring him? Well, you're just honoring him. If you had a picture of your wife and you were, you know, far away from her and you saw the picture and you said, you know, oh, I really miss her, and you kissed the picture, are you worshiping the photograph as if it were God himself or an idol? No, you're showing honor or love for your wife in the picture. If you saw a flag, I'm an American, I see the American flag, we salute the flag or we cover our heart towards the flag, to show honor towards the flag and, by extension, to our nation? Am I worshiping the nation or worshiping the fabric flag? No, I'm showing honor. If the Queen of England visited my home, we would probably bow before her. Does that mean that we're worshiping the Queen of England? No. If I met the Pope, I would genuflect on my left knee and kiss his hand. Does that mean I'm worshiping the Pope? No, I'm showing him honor, reverence. So I think you get the point here. The Council of Nicaea, too, in the 8th century, decreed that we as Christians 
can show dulia, we can show veneration or reverence or honor towards physical objects that are worthy of reverence. And I mean, we would show reverence to a cross. We wouldn't throw a cross in the street or throw a cross in the toilet. We would show it honor all the time, of course. But we wouldn't show honor to, say, a statue of the devil, right? So we wouldn't honor those things. But anything that signifies or represents Christian realities and grace and where God has been at work, we do show reverence for that. So we show the reverence for the bodies of the Christian dead. We show reverence for the cross. A picture of the Virgin Mary or a picture of Jesus, we're going to show reverence towards that. And we can even show reverence in the form of kissing it, like we would kiss a photograph, or by burning a light in front of it to illuminate it and to signify our prayer before a saint, or of Christ himself. So at this council, Nicaea 2, they judge that we Christians only show latria, worship, adoration, adoratio in Latin is is how it's translated in the Latin, to God, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and by extension the Eucharist, because the Eucharist is God the Son. But we show dulia, to anything that is holy or related to God, but is not God himself. So, the Virgin Mary, St. Michael, your guardian angel, Peter and Paul, the uh, remains of a recently deceased Christian. You get the idea. So with all that being explained, and now you kind of understand, and you know, a lot of non-Catholics are going to judge you and judge me and say, well, you are idolaters. You worship the Pope. You worship the Virgin Mary. You worship the crucifix, right? And all we have to say is no. We show honor. Do you honor your mother? Do you honor your father? Do you honor your country? Yes. Well, we honor our Heavenly Mother, the Virgin Mary. We honor our spiritual country, our spiritual nation, which is the Catholic Church. We honor our leaders, priests, bishops, popes, etc. And this honor is not the same thing as worship. So with all this being said, we go back into Revelation 19 and we ask ourselves, well, what did St. John do to the angel here? Did he give the angel latria, worship, or did he give the angel dulia, veneration? Well, like I said earlier, we don't have either one of those Greek words, latria or dulia. We have instead proskuneo, which can mean either Dulia or Latria in the Bible. It's ambiguous. So we really don't know, but I'm going to give you my take. This is just my opinion, and I don't have any church fathers to back me up because I couldn't find anything on it. Um, What's going on here is John, who wrote the Gospel of John, is making a point that the Old Testament, which we read from St. Paul, was given to us through the ministry of angels. So the Old Covenant which is associated with Jerusalem in Israel, was given through the ministry of angels. And suddenly, when the angel himself announces the wedding supper of the Lamb, which is the chief sacrificial rite and sacrament of the new covenant, John wrongly assumes that this sacrificial reality will be mediated by angels as it was in the Old Testament. And so he shows reverence. And I, my hunch here is he's showing uh, extreme form of dulia, probably not worship. He knows who Christ is, and he knows who God is, and he knows his angel. Maybe, I'm just saying, maybe he knows, but it seems that he would know that. He's an apostle afterward. And so the angel rebukes him and says, don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of of Jesus. And what's going on here is the angel is revealing to John and then to all of us. It's a lesson. It's a it's a pictorial lesson that in the new covenant humans and angels are part of the same community. Human and angels are no longer separated. We have actually joined the heavenly host. You know, in the Old Testament, all the dead all the living humans were on earth, all the dead humans were in Sheol or the limbo of the, of the patriarchs, and all the angels were in heaven with God. Well, now, 
the humans have joined the angels. And so the angel is saying here, hey, John, don't think of yourself as less than me. I am your fellow servant. We're working together. Christ has raised us up. And this has happened because Jesus Christ, second person in Trinity, assumed human nature. And by dying and rising again, and then through the ascension, the ascension of Christ, which is the second glorious mystery, Christ has elevated human flesh, human blood, the human soul, into the beatific vision, into the heavenly realms. And so now, you know, before heaven was just the Trinity and angels. Now the Trinity, one person, the Trinity, God the Son, has assumed human nature, and now humans are in the beatific vision. They are in heaven with the angels. And so angels are no longer mediating the covenant of God to humans. In fact, who is mediating the covenant of God to humans right now? Well, Christ is, but Christ has chosen priests, human priests, a human pope, a human cardinal, a human bishop, a human sacerdotal priest. And the sacrifice of Christ comes to us through the hands of sinful men who are consecrated to be priests. Your father, Father Father Bill, Father Phil, Father Thomas, at your local parish, the covenant Christ has chosen to mediate through them. He's even given them the power to absolve sins. So we see human nature has been elevated into the divine economy of salvation. I'm going to go back here to the wedding supper of the Lamb that the angel mentions. We know this to be the Eucharist, and we know that the earliest Christians celebrated the Eucharist every single day, but especially they came together as required by canon law. Then, well, there wasn't technically canon law. There's apostolic instruction because the apostles were standing there. But today, canon law, that you as a baptized person who has received your first communion must, under pain of mortal sin, attend the Eucharist on Sunday. Yes, it's still on the books because the apostles made the rule. And we see this going on in the New Testament. For example, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we read this, quote, And on the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread. What's the first day of the week? Sunday. And Paul says, that's the day we gather together. We Christians all come together in one place to break bread. Notice he doesn't say, and on the first day of the week, when we Christians come together to hear a sermon. And on the first day of the week, when we Christians come together for Sunday school. No. Of course, those things are good. We need sermons. We need Sunday school. It's great. Catechesis. But the very most important thing is to break bread. And break bread, of course, is code for the Eucharist. The breaking of the bread. The drinking of the sacred chalice. In the Didache, which is a first century document, with that we don't know the author, but it records what Christianity was like just after the apostles died maybe even while the apostles were still alive, we read this. But every Lord's Day, that is Sunday, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving, and in the Greek there, give Eucharist, after having confessed your transgressions, that your sacrifice may be pure. Let me read that again without comment. But every Lord's Day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving, Eucharist, after you have confessed your transgressions so that your sacrifice may be pure. Here in the Didache, we see that when do they come together? On the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is Sunday. They break bread. They give thanksgiving. The word is Eucharist. After they have confessed their sins. This is why we Catholics, if we have a mortal sin, we must confess the mortal sin to a Catholic priest and receive absolution before we receive the Eucharist. You may have heard a Catholic priest say this. Well, if you're at a Mass and you have a mortal sin and you intend to confess it later on that week or sometime in the future, it's okay. Go ahead and receive communion. Eh, fail. 
heretical theology. If a priest told you that, he is wrong. The Council of Trent, infallible, ecumenical council, ratified by the Pope, Vicar of Christ, states that a Christian, a baptized person, must uh, have his confess his sins and have them absolved before he receives the sacrament, the most blessed sacrament, the Eucharist. It is infallible teaching in the Catholic Church. You cannot just say, well, later on I'm going to go to confession, so now I can receive communion. No, the time sequence matters. You must first confess your sins, then you receive the Eucharist. And that's what it says here in the Didache, which comes from the first century. We also have a a record from St. Justin of Rome. You probably know him as Justin Martyr or St. Justin the Martyr. And he writes this. This is in his book, The First Apology. On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise and pray. And as we said before, when our prayer is complete, bread and wine and water are brought forth. And the president, in like manner, offers prayers and thanksgiving according to his ability in the people assent by saying, Amen. And there is a distribution to each and a participation of that over which thanks has been given. And to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. End quote. So this is St. Justin the Martyr explaining how Mass worked in the early church. It's a supper. They gather together on Sunday, the day of the Lord. They read the memoirs of the prophets and the apostles, the Old and the New Testament. Then the presiding one exhorts the people to follow what is read there, a sermon. Then they bring forth bread, wine, and water. And the celebrant prays over these things with thanksgivings, Eucharist. Everyone receives, and if anyone's not there because they're sick, the deacons bring them a portion of the Eucharist. We as Catholics know that the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Catholic life. And it's no surprise that in the book of Revelation, when Jerusalem, which was the sacramental city of the Old Testament, when Jerusalem is finally destroyed in the book of Revelation, we have to have a new sacramental location. We have to have a new way to commune with God. You know, the ancient Jews, they would turn towards Jerusalem and pray, but since this has happened, since the desolation in the year A.D. 70 by the Romans over Jerusalem, which we've talked about in previous podcasts, so if you missed those, go back and listen to those. Since Jerusalem has become or became the abomination of desolation and was destroyed by the Romans, it's no longer the sacramental center of God's economy. What is the sacramental center? The Eucharist, the wedding supper of the Lamb. We Catholics don't pray towards Jerusalem. We Catholics pray towards the tabernacle. That's right. We turn our attention, our prayer, to the place where the Eucharist is reserved in the churches of God. So that's that second uh, part of the 19th chapter where the angel comes and says, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And John attempts to show some sort of veneration or worship. We don't know if it's Latry or Dulia, but the angel clarifies and says, hey, I'm just now on level with you guys. You humans don't need to be worshiping angels. And by the way, the Gnostics of the first century and the second century were worshiping angels. And St. John is very much concerned about these Gnostic heretics who have left the Catholic Church and they're teaching the Christian people to venerate and worship these uh, oddly named strange angels, which are actual demons, right? Because the angels are no longer mediating the covenant. Christ is mediating the new covenant through the Eucharist, and the Eucharist is mediated to us through the priest he has ordained. Now, beginning in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, 
and behold, a white horse. He who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So heaven is opened with the announcement of the wedding supper of the Lamb. So the wedding supper of the Lamb is what triggers the opening of heaven, and we get to see Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what the Mass is for us. The Mass opens heaven. We say, lift up our hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. And after that, we come into true, real, sacramental contact with Jesus Christ. Then in verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and his, on his head are many diadems. Now, his eyes are like flame of fire because they burn into your soul. His eyes see everything. And on his head are diadems. Diadems are crowns. Christ wears the crown of every single nation. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as we're about to see. And he has a name inscribed which no one knows but himself. So here it's referring to a name inscribed, and it's just referred to the crown, the diadem. And the high priest of the Old Testament wore a crown, and on the front of it was inscribed the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And here it says that Christ is now wearing that priestly crown, and there's a name inscribed on it, but no one knows it but himself. This means that Christ is God. Christ is the only one who knows God the Father perfectly. He's the only one who can reveal it, and he's the only one who can fully comprehend who God is. We will know God in the beatific vision. We will have a vision of God, but we will never 100% fully comprehend God because God is infinite. God is beyond 100%. But Christ, who is God, does in fact know God fully, and he wears that on his brow as a crown like a high priest. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God, the Logos. So he's wearing a robe, and it's dipped in blood. And this, of course, refers back to what we've seen already in the book of Revelation as him being the one who pulls the harvest and splatters the grape juice, which turns into the wine and is filled, uh, poured into, rather, into the chalices, which are then poured out on Jerusalem. And then in verse 14, we read, And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, followed him on white horses. So now the armies of heaven are revealed, and the armies are the angels, but also the saints. And guess what? Just like Christ, they are riding on a white horse. Now, the white horse image we saw previously in chapter 6, and it's the idea of a king riding throughout the world on a white horse, uh, preparing the way for something. And what's being prepared here? It is the coming of the gospel. This epiphany, this theophany of Christ here in Revelation 19 is not the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're going to see that uh, in a little bit. This is the manifestation of Christ at the fall of Jerusalem. So not at the end of time. This is at the fall of of Jerusalem. And how do we know that? Well, Josephus, the great Jewish historian who was alive and present for the destruction of Jerusalem, actually writes this in his historical record, and I quote, Before the setting of the sun, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds and surrounding of cities. Moreover, at the feast, which we call Pentecost, as the priests were going by night into the inner court of the temple, as their custom was, to perform their sacred ministrations, they said that, in the first place, they felt a quaking and heard a great noise. And after that, they heard a sound as of a great multitude saying, Let us remove from here. End quote. So Josephus describes the sound of chariots and soldiers and troops in the heavens above Jerusalem, so an army. And then when they're going into the temple on the Feast of Pentecost, they hear a voice of a multitude, same phrase we've seen over and over in the book of Revelation, saying, let us remove hence. In other words, let us get out of here. This is the voice of God and his angels saying, we are leaving the temple. This is over. Eusebius, the great church historian from the 4th century, in his book Ecclesiastical History, also 
repeats the same story, and he says that there were on the Feast of Pentecost, the priests were in the temple, and they heard the great noise and the sound of chariots and troops flying mid-air over Jerusalem. The Roman historian, who was not a Jewish and not a Christian, records something similar. Uh, Tacitus is in the first century, so he's at this same time, so he would have spoken to people who were there who witnessed these events. And he writes, There had been seen hosts, armies, joining battle in the skies, the fiery gleam of arms, the temple illuminated by sudden radiance from the clouds, the doors of the inner shrine were suddenly thrown open, and a voice of more than mortal tone was heard to cry out that the gods were departing. At the same instant, there was a mighty stir as of departure. End quote. So Tacitus, of course, he thinks the gods, plural, are departing. He's, just, he's not a Christian. He's not Jewish. He doesn't fully understand the Jewish religion. But he, too, has heard of this miraculous event in which there was a host, a army, battling, riding above heaven, and then there's this great disturbance in the voice saying, we are departing, we are leaving. This is Christ himself showing up on the white horse, leading his nations, just as we see in Revelation 19. It's a historical event. Many Christians don't know about this, but it is a historical event. It is testified to by non-Christian historians like Josephus and Tacitus, And it is the manifestation of the new covenant. It is the final judgment. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, and therefore God is leaving behind the temple. He's leaving behind Jerusalem as the sacramental city. And he's about to, well, he already has institute, but he's about to extend the sacramental reality of the Eucharist. So I'm hoping right now that you're blown away you're realizing that the preterist read of the book of Revelation is accurate. It has historical evidence. But in case you're not convinced, I'm going to put a little bit more icing on the cake, maybe even put a cherry and some candles on it for you. Because in verse 15, we read this, From his mouth issues a sharp sword with which to strike the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of his fury, I'm sorry, of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name inscribed, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So in this passage, we see that the sword, which is usually carried on a man's thigh, is not there. There's a name instead, which is King of Kings and Lords of Lords. That's Jesus Christ. And instead, the sword is in a different place. The sword is in his mouth. This is because... The words of Christ are a double-edged, sharp sword. This is imagery applied to God himself in the Old Testament. So in Isaiah 49, and again, I say it over and over again in this podcast, if you don't know the Old Testament, you are totally lost in the book of Revelation. You constantly have to be turning back to the Old Testament over and over to see what these images mean, where they come from. Isaiah 49 reads like this. From the inward parts of my mother he named me, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. So this is a messianic psalm, and of course God, through the uh, virginal conception in the womb of the Immaculate Virgin Mary, he um, brought about the incarnation. Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, And then the next verse in Isaiah 49 says, And he made my mouth like a sharp sword. So the Messiah has a mouth of prophecy. His words divide and cut mankind. Divide us into the righteous and the wicked. The same image is used by another uh, Jewish prophet, another Old Testament prophet, Hosea. And in Hosea chapter 6, verse 5, we read this. By the prophets... I have cut them into pieces. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, end quote. So there, once again, the the mouth is seen as a sword. And, you know, St. John Chrysostom, one of the great Eastern fathers of the church, the Eastern churches use the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. And St. John Chrysostom has a great quote. He says that the Catholic priest, the priest of the New Covenant, 
his tongue is like a sword. In, in the Old Testament, the priests used knives to cut the sacrificial animals, the victims, into pieces, which would then be offered on the altar to God as a, as a covenantal sign, as a sacrifice. He says, in the New Testament, our Catholic priests don't carry knives to the altar. Uh, instead, they use their tongue to sacrifice the victim. Who's the victim? Well, he's the victor and the victim, Jesus Christ. And it's with their tongue that they say, this is my body. This is my blood. And sacramentally, they divide the body and blood, and they signify there the death of Jesus Christ offered to God the Father. And then they present it to us, and then we receive it on our tongues as well. So St. John Chrysostom sees the, the tongue as the sacrificial blade of the New Testament. We see that derived here from the book of Revelation. But there's something really cool about this in history. And we're going to go back to Josephus. And Josephus records another event related to the chariots and armies and horses in heaven over Jerusalem and the departure of God from the temple. Another sign is revealed. So Josephus, the Jewish historian in the first century, tells us this as well. Quote, Thus, there was a star resembling a sword which stood over the city in a comet that continued a whole year. Later on in, in a, that same passage, it says, So great a light shone around the altar in the holy house that it appeared to be bright daytime, which lasted for about an hour. So we see that there's astrological phenomenon, phenomena. pardon me, And Josephus says that there's a special star that stood, his words, which stood over the city, end quote, that resembled a sword. So not only do we have the idea of armies and horses over Jerusalem, we also have this apparition of a peculiar star or a comet. He says star or comet here in Josephus of a sword. And so I think what's going on here in Revelation 19 verses 11 through 16 is this uh, mystical language is describing what the Jewish people experienced in Jerusalem at the fall of Jerusalem by the Romans. They hear the sound of the, the armies of heaven, and they see the sword, which is the sword coming from the mouth of Christ. So they don't physically see Jesus Christ. They see the manifestations of his presence over the city as God himself finally leaves Jerusalem and abandons the temple to be destroyed. That leads us to the very last section of this chapter, and we'll be closed for the day. Just a few more verses, beginning in verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly in midheaven, midheaven, saying, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both great and small. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who sits upon the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had worked the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. And the rest were slain by the sword of him who sits on the horse, the sword that issues from his mouth, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh, and quote, end of the chapter. Well, here we see another feast assembled. So we've seen the feast of the Lamb, the wedding supper of the Lamb announced, that's the Eucharist, and now the end of Jerusalem is marked with a new feast. And an angel standing in the sun calls all the unclean birds. In the Old Testament, birds that ate flesh were seen as, like carrion, were seen as unclean. And these birds now come and gather at the city and are told to eat the flesh of men and of horses, free men, men enslaved, everybody, and they are consumed. This refers, of course, to the utter destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem um, was destroyed by the Romans. The Romans used the standard of the eagle, which is that bird that eats the flesh. So Rome surrounded the city, destroyed the city, but then... St. John in verse 19 sees the beast 
Rome, with its kings and its armies gathered together, and the beast is captured. And with the false prophet, that's the land beast, who does signs in the presence of the sea beast, the Roman Empire, they are cast into the lake of fire. They are thrown into hell. They are judged. Totally. And then what's great about this is Christ himself slays the rest of the of the kings with the sword that issues from his mouth. And I take this to mean that Christ takes the sword, and the sword is not necessarily um, one of judgment unto hell. It's also life-giving. The Word of God is life-giving. It is alive. It's true. And so we see Christ throughout time riding on his white horse, beginning in Jerusalem and then to Samaria and Galilee and unto the ends of the world. He's riding his white horse with his apostles and his bishops and his missionaries riding with him. And with that sword of the Spirit, the Word of the Lord, the Gospel, the Bible, the apostolic tradition, they are riding throughout the world and they are making conquest. They are taking souls for Christ and binding them to him and preparing them to receive the wedding supper of the Lamb. So this is actually a good thing. This is actually the conquest of the gospel. This is the evangelization of the world. We talk about the new evangelization. This was the old evangelization beginning in the 60s and 70s of the primitive church, in the early church, the New Testament church, as the apostles began to be martyred, and then the second generation of leadership, the new generation of bishops, took over and led the Catholic Church even unto this day. So in the next podcast, we're going to go into Revelation 20, and here we see a thousand-year reign of Christ. And at the end of the thousand year, uh, Satan is released again to bring about a final battle between good and evil. And we're going to see how in the early church there were many Christians who believed that this would be a literal 1,000-year physical reign on earth with Jesus enthroned here on earth, but how the tradition of St. Augustine of Hippo brought about the amillennial belief that the millennium is a symbolic number and it has a spiritual meaning. And so we'll look at what that spiritual meaning is for St. Augustine and for the Catholic Church um, all the way up until this day and until the end of time. And we'll also learn about how Satan's release and then his final destruction relates not only to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, but to the final apocalypse, the final Antichrist, the end of time, which will then um, be followed by the general resurrection, which we'll see also in chapter 20 next episode. And then finally, we'll see chapter 21 and chapter 2, which is the closing of the book of Revelation. So a lot of great news to come as we finish the book of Revelation. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you have been blessed. I've referenced it before, and I want to reference it again, that the book of Revelation itself gives a blessing. It gives a prophecy to everyone who studies the book of Revelation. At the end of Revelation, in chapter 22, verse 7, it says, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. So, You are studying this book, and you can keep the prophecy of this book and live marked with the sign of the Lamb, the Son of God. Closing application for Revelation chapter 19 is a Eucharistic one. Every time you go to Mass, every time you kneel there in the pew and prepare yourself to receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, you are entering into an apocalyptic scenario. You may not see the skies open. You may not see celestial white horses over the church or see a star in the shape of a a sword. You may not see the beast and his false prophet being thrown into the lake of fire. But all of those things really and truly are happening. I'm not just saying it as a cliche or as something sentimental to think about. It truly is happening. Christ the King 
is coming with his host, with his armies, riding on a white horse. That's why we say, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. Host is a military term. He's coming with his armies. That's why we say that at the beginning of the Eucharistic prayer. And he comes, and he is the sacrificial victim. He is there with his robe dipped in the blood, and he's there to be our Savior. And every time we have a Mass, every time there's a Eucharist, the enemies of God, the beast, the secular empires, the false prophets, false religions are all set back a notch. They are all punished. And the devil himself sinks deeper and deeper into the lake of fire. We believe this. We confess this. The Eucharist is not just a symbol. It's not just a reminder. It's not just a memorial. It is an apocalyptic reality. We Catholics believe in a sacramental and an apocalyptic Eucharistic liturgy. This is why we call the Eucharist, and Pope Benedict was great at this, the Eucharist is eschatological. That's a big fancy word. Eschatological comes from the word eschaton, meaning the last things, the judgment, the last, the end. And so every time we're in the Mass, we go back in time, so to speak, to the Last Supper and to the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. But we're also fast forward to the end of time when the Bride of Christ uh, enters into that perfect union, that wedding supper of the Lamb, and is perfectly united with Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our King, forever. So the next time you're at Mass, I want to challenge you. I want you to close your eyes, and when you say, Lord God of hosts, I want you to picture Jesus coming on a white horse, as he's depicted here in Revelation 19, surrounded by angels and saints, also on white horses, with a sword issuing from his mouth, and receive him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as it's written on his thigh, as it says in verse 16 of chapter 19. Okay, so do that. Think of Christ as the king and victor in your life. He can destroy all the enemies, all the dragons that are haunting you. I want to send a big shout out to everyone who has left a review on iTunes for this podcast, for those of you that have been benefiting and enjoying it. I really enjoy reading your comments and seeing your ratings, and I'd like to encourage everyone listening, if you would, please do me a really big favor and go into iTunes and leave a rating and review. Whenever you do that, it gives me feedback, but more importantly, it ranks this show higher in iTunes so that more listeners can find this Catholic podcast, learn more about tips of the week, Latin word of the weeks, other things we do when we're not doing the Revelation series that are beneficial to people, or to find this series on Revelation. So if you want to spread it around on the internet, what you can do is, of course, you can share it on Facebook. I'd love that. But if you could rate it on iTunes, I would really appreciate you. So this week, I want to give a shout out to Texas Red, who writes, as a young adult seeking to better understand my faith and Catholicism, I've really enjoyed listening to and learning from Dr. Taylor Marshall. Very engaging and well-spoken. Thanks for your work, Gigum, and Gigum right back at you, Texas Red. Uh, I am a graduate from Texas A&M, and our motto is Gigum. So he knows somehow he knows I'm an Aggie, and he gave me the Gigum. So thanks for that, Texas Red. Also, James uh, wrote a comment here. First rate, he writes, The Bible study on the book of Revelation is amazing. I'm slowly working my way through the other topics. I highly recommend the books this guy has written. Well, thanks, James, for reading the books and listening to the shows. And then the comment of the week goes to Catherine, who is a 73-year-old woman, and she writes this. Can anyone understand the book of Revelation? Dr. Taylor Marshall is showing us how. He has intelligent and informative answers that explain what Revelation is all about. He gives some history to explain what is being revealed. I'm a 73-year-old, and I'm learning new things about the Catholic Church and the Bible that I never knew before. You would be amazed at what you could learn, end quote. So, Catherine, thanks so much. You get the shout-out of the week. Thanks for leaving that review. And if you'd like to, please go into iTunes and enter into the iTunes Store. This is a free podcast, but for some reason you have to go into iTunes Store to rate it. Go into iTunes Store and click on the tab Ratings and Review. Click on the button. You can write a review. I will read it, and I will shout-out your name here on the show and maybe choose you for the shout-out of the week. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this chapter, this uh, chapter of victory, actually, of Revelation 19. And remember that our Lord Jesus Christ, who has that sword coming out of his mouth, and he has written on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's, 
you know, making conquests of all the nations. He has personally created you and chosen you to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So go out there and be salty. Hey, if you're interested in going on a Catholic pilgrimage with me to Rome to learn more about Catholic theology and Catholic theology, also to be there for the Feast of St. Peter and Paul, catacombs, Vatican museums, check out pilgrimages.com forward slash Taylor Marshall. This podcast was brought to you by the new St. Thomas Institute. Discover online Catholic classes and earn your certificate in Catholic theology at the new St. Thomas Institute. To register for online Catholic classes, please visit newsaintthomas.com. That's newsaintthomas.com.